whatever we do, at some point there are failures or there is negligence. So you have to reintervene. So our lives are by themselves a circle of reintervention. There is nothing that I know that is persistent. I certainly, I, I cannot have any example of that. Everything has these boundaries, ups and downs. And you, what you have to do is to know how you treat things at the appropriate time. This is why I think meditation or thinking or these 15 minutes are very helpful to go through all of this. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the centennial episode of Parallax. Um, uh, to the listenership, thank you so much for uh, you know tuning in every other Monday to listen to us. And um, it's been a journey for us, um, you know, at Ratcliffe Cardiology as well as at Parallax uh, to reach the centennial episode. We've had the opportunity and the privilege and the blessing to host uh, some luminary cardiologists um, on our platform. And our hope has been um, to touch upon their lives and their careers uh, and to learn from them and to imbibe uh, what they've done so well, uh, you know, balancing uh, their personal life uh, as well as their professional life, and um, uh, it's it's um, it, it's emotional for me. It's also uh, incredibly special for me uh, to host the 100th episode and to host it with someone whom um, I can say this uh, as a field we've all looked up to, uh, we've all aspired to be, and uh, to someone who I do not think uh, needs uh, any introduction whatsoever in the stratosphere and in the universe of cardiovascular medicine and cardiology or medicine, I should say at large. Um, so with, with this, with this um, preamble, um, it is my absolute honor and privilege and a blessing uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Valentin Fuster on the centennial episode of Parallax. Um, you know, as I said uh, in the preamble, Dr. Fuster does not require any introduction. He is the editor-in-chief of Journal of the American College of Cardiology. He is um, a professor of medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Fuster, I, I'll share this with you. Uh, the now inaugural Dr. Valentin Fuster Professor of Medicine, Dr. Deepak Bhatt, uh, was actually the guest on Parallax uh, on our 50th episode. So it, it is befitting that Dr. Valentin Fuster himself is the is the guest on the hundredth episode, Dr. Fuster? Welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be with you and to have uh, a discussion about life. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I can't wait to get started. So, uh, you know, Dr. Fuster, um, so many of us, you know, obviously know you as um, as who you are, um, you know, cardiologist extraordinaire. I'd like to start this episode by asking you about, you know, your early uh, years, uh, you know, how did uh, your upbringing uh, in, in Barcelona, uh, you know, shape up um, the person you are today? Well, I think, first of all, my father was a psychiatrist and I was the last of five children. So I was, I evolved with tremendous degree of freedom. I suspect this freedom was controlled maybe less than in my 
brothers and sisters, but certainly I remember that was fantastic. Uh, you know, the feeling free, and at the same time very positive. My mother was an administrator in a hospital, and she was very very positive. And then I had a good somehow at that time. I began to think about my grandfather, who was a very interesting individual. Uh, first, the pre was the president of the University of Barcelona, but he was very socially oriented. So he developed a number of schools, free schools that nobody could had to pay anything, and this was across Catalonia in the, in the south of France. So, in a way, uh, summarizing, significant degree of freedom very positive and somehow socially oriented already from the beginning. You know, I think uh, that that's a great concoction because uh, you mentioned freedom uh, and there is something to be said about freedom. Uh, I would you, would you say Dr. Fuster that freedom um, would also mean lack of fear? W is freedom also fearlessness is what I'm, what I'm trying to ask you. A good point is freedom in the sense of expanding in your curiosity, in your development, in your creativity, but always under some degree of control, not very tangible, but I think was there. It's a, it's a sense that you are yourself, but at the same time, you're not going to do stupid things because there's somebody who's going to tell you. And I, I had this, uh, no question about it. And when I go back, I think this is fascinating to me. And, and I have to say, what I learned in the early ages of my life, I think has a lot to do with the projects I'm carrying out today in terms of children and so forth in promoting health. I think it has a lot to do with that time. Dr. Fuster, the, the other um, facet of your upbringing that you, that you mentioned was um, positivity. And, you know, I think positivity is, is important uh, uh, to, to each one of us. I think, you know, particularly practicing cardiologists and uh, in, in every sphere of cardiology, you know, particularly procedural cardiology, as we are interfacing with patients when they're very vulnerable. And, you know, it's such a privilege to, to be in person. How do you foster positivity in 2023, and, and the reason I ask this is because of somehow the culture we find ourselves in, you know, there is quote unquote a cancel culture. You know, people just want to cancel each other uh, a lot, or, or so is my perception. Um, how do you foster positivity in 2023? Very important question, actually. And I think it goes back to another question, which is, uh, uh, is the question of, uh, what do you mean by success? Let me be sure, because this is very important. To me, this sense of positivity comes that you are doing what you are good at. This sense of fulfillment is so important in each of us. And that is, you may be ambitious and trying to do something, you don't have the tools to do it. But if you have, whether our patients, whether it's research, whatever it is, and you say, you know, this is the best of me, let me move forward. There will be failures, there will be successes, but the fact of the matter, the most critical issue is actually this sense of fulfillment. And I say this because many people come to me and say, you know, tell me what is success. 
And I say success is fulfillment. Sometimes it works positively. Sometimes it works negative. And I think that's what it is. So in a way, I try to convey to you my view of positivity too. And that is you do the best you can and you accomplish or you try to provide to society the best of you. That to me is critically important. Uh, anyway, I try to answer your question the best way I could. Yeah, no, I think that that's um, that's a fascinating answer, actually. And I will get to get to success and failure, uh, you know, later in the show. Um, you know, but but thank you for signifying the importance of fulfillment. Uh, I think that is what gives each one of us, at least, I, I can talk about myself when I'm, you know, here with you. That um, th- that is one aspect of one's existence that would give you a good night's sleep you know that you know i had a fulfilling day and i did what i could do best um to help uh, the, the 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 people around me which which brings me to the third facet of your your upbringing and you mentioned about um the the social aspect thanks to your grandfather you know just an allegory i was very, very attached to my grandfather and i think some of the uh, spiritual and and religious aspects of my my personality and and what i've you know imbibed in my clinical practice is because of my grandfather um how was uh, how how was having um a socially fulfilling life uh impressionable to you um if you can explain that to us well maybe uh, um examples are critical i wanted to be a tennis player and actually at age 15 16, I was the, the, the second in Spain. I was a champion. And then there was the a champion in doubles. But I failed on one subject. I don't remember which one it was. And my father said, you know, you cannot play tennis four hours a day. You now have to devote time to this. And I did it that summer. I was selected for the Davis Cup of young people in uh, in Miami, and they said, you know, you have not played during the summer. You have to play with few people. You will win and so forth. I lost. And that day, which I remember vividly, I reached the conclusion that I was not going to be a Rafael Nadal or anything like that. So I switched, completely stopped tennis, 100%. And then the question was, what do you like to do? And I like nature a lot. I like the biology of nature. I don't have to go into the details. So I decided to actually uh, work or go to the university to be uh, what we call in Spain, uh, agriculture engineer anyway. But at that time, Barcelona didn't have such university for that subject. I had to go to another town. So there's no chance. We used to be with the family where you were born. And in the moment of I wouldn't call despair, but the moment of saying who you are, like a miracle happened. And there was a mentor, somebody who followed me when I was playing tennis in the same Barcelona tennis club, say you would be a fantastic physician. I couldn't know. I I didn't know what he was talking about. And the reason I didn't know is because I say this person actually was the most known physician in Spain. He wrote the textbook in Spanish and so forth. And somebody of that caliber telling you, you know, I said, fine, I will be a doctor. 
is as simple as that. It's the belief on somebody who out of the blue tells you something. Well, that individual developed a heart attack at age 40, 43, and he said, of everything I know, cardiology, I am the weakest. So you must be a cardiologist. And actually, that's exactly what happened. That's the reason. Then he advised me to go to the UK rather than the United States, because in the UK, I could learn the basis of medicine. Interesting, we can, there's no need to go into this right now, but it's more than technological, it was a different type of medicine. And at that time, basic science was histopathology and electron microscopy. So I worked with Professor Sheehan in Liverpool. And Professor Sheehan told me everything I need to know. And I remember after two weeks to sit with him uh, in the diagnostic uh, department, he said, what do you see in this slide? And I said, nothing. Then I put it in the microscope. I saw nothing. She says, now you need electron microscopy. This is a clot full of platelets. And I said, what that means? This was a patient who died of a heart attack. And I said, what the heart attack is, is the cause of the consequence. I'm talking about the early 1960s. And he said, I don't know, very humble guy, which I learned a lot, but you should do the thesis about this in your future. This is what led me to research that slide. But the important thing here of these aspects is what mentorship is all about, is trust on somebody who independently tells you what to do. And you don't have to think about it. It's just as simple as that. So in fact, my life was very simple. It's just to follow people I trusted and people who I knew would do anything for me. Anyway, I'm just trying to explain to you, or at least uh, giving an answer to you, I always felt fulfilled, but people helped me to feel it. And mentorship, I can tell you, is something I am obsessed about it when I talk to young people. Also, older people need mentorship, but we should not forget those early times in life. Who is the one who cares about you, who you trust? Just follow. Thank you, Dr. Fuster. That's a, that's a beautiful answer. And, um, you know, it was actually a great segue that you brought up mentorship because that was going to be, the, you know, the next topic of discussion for this podcast. Uh, you 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 brought up um, a crucial aspect of life, which is um, which is trust. You know, which again, uh, you know, in 2023, I find a lot of people struggle with. And uh, you know, I think um, again, em- embarking upon examples, uh, I think you know, trust for me is the the ability to to listen to that very meek inner voice which tells you that this is your path. And I want to uh, sort of, you know, the fact that we have you on the show, you know, learn from you through your wisdom, how you, how you develop trust in someone or how, how you know that this person or this opportunity or this project is, is worth my time. Not difficult to answer. You are listening to you by somebody else. Is as simple as that. And that is you want to know the truth. You want to be fulfilled. You want to know who you are. And somehow another voice is resounding on you. And that's what it is. In fact, these people I mentioned to you, and I could mention other, Desmond Julian in Edinburgh, who I was his fellow for three years. 
he didn't talk too much. But whatever he talked is myself. He knew me so well. So the, the trust is something that is something that they have you, but it's somebody else who's talking for you. And this is a sense that is absolutely important. Many young people, unfortunately, say, you know, I don't trust anybody and I don't need mentors. Well, these people, unfortunately, are too arrogant, I would say. They don't realize that we need help from other people. And that's where trust comes in. We cannot walk alone. And I have to tell you this, uh, frankly, Anchor, uh, when I go back to my life, whatever job I had, whatever, I always think about other people. There's no question about it. The people who help you. And these are were people with trust. Let me tell you something. You may be the head of a department, and then you have to recruit people. And maybe people who are fantastic in their knowledge, science, anyway. I have to tell you, the people I have certainly that work with me, there's much more than that. And this is trust. Uh, so because it's part of your life. So this this goes beyond a personal feeling. This goes beyond. It's the group you develop, the people you develop. And all of us have trust about among ourselves. So uh, what I'm saying is the, the, the word trust is just resounding something on yourself. And it's extremely important to choose who, who you trust and who trusts you because it's a mutual kind of a, of an interaction. You know, excellent. And, um, you know, moving on, um, I think from trust to, you know, building a unit or building a department, um, which uh, I'm going to ask you next is, is how do you overcome barriers, you know, in your excellent book, which I think every physician, I mean, I think everyone should read. Um, I certainly have a copy. It's called The Circle of Motivation. Uh, for those of you who do not know, Dr. Fuster has published an excellent book. It's called The Circle of Motivation. Go ahead and get yourself a copy. It's available on Amazon, uh, you know, among other platforms. Um, so uh, Dr. Fuster, in Circle of Motivation, you, you shared your moments that, you know, have have shaped you, uh, including your very first day at Mount Sinai. Um, so I want to use that as a, as, um, you know, a platform for this question as to, how did you overcome barriers uh, and how did you, while overcoming barriers, you know, maintain your optimism? Because again, that is something which I believe is a skill. Maintaining optimism, which, uh, you know, goes back to your, your, your early life of, of being positive, you know, thanks to your mother. Uh, but, you know, how, how would you answer that question for us? Yeah, the question is, we have good and bad moments. And this may happen in a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis. I think this is absolutely important that you have that sense of ups and downs. And this is actually what I believe. If you do what you are supposed to do and you have a bad moment or a bad time, a bad experience, what you do is you try to overcome that and saying, I am at the bottom, but I know I can be on the top. So whatever affects you, I wouldn't say you have to be optimistic, but you have to be positive. And then you move up into an eye. And when you are very high, you have to be very, very careful because this is the beginning 
of going low. So the sense that you, who you are and you do the best you can, this in itself gives you a motivation, but there is much more than that. I have formulas, doesn't matter, but the one issue that for me has been extremely helpful, extremely helpful, is to do nothing 15, 15 minutes a day. I arrive in my office very early. In the first 15 minutes, I look at an idiot. I do nothing, thinking what is wrong, what is right. You don't have any phones. Nobody bothers you. And then those 15 minutes of every day to me, I have to tell you, is certainly 75% of the day. You are prepared. You think about it. And always with the same concept, with the same concept, is your own, you are the, your own person. And here I have, a, I have a formula of four T's. One is time to reflect, which is what I meant to, I mentioned. The other is talent to become aware what your talent is, which I already mentioned. The third is to transmit positivity, which I already mentioned. And the fourth is tutoring or mentorship that I already mentioned. So in the lowest times, I really go through all of these and I say, you know what? You're doing the best you can. If you don't, just try. Anyway, that's to me is the circle of motivation to be sure that you understand that what people say, what is happiness? I don't talk about happiness ever. I talk about fulfillment and I talk about ups and downs and I talk about positivity and I talk about what can we give to society if biological, you are already ready for that because we all go through biology first is ourselves and then you may move to society once you fulfill. So more or less, this is the way I can answer your question. And this is the circle of motivation. No, it's just, it's a it's a profound answer, and thank you for answering it so eloquently for us and so beautifully for us. Which which brings me to my next question, and I know you touched upon success being fulfillment. Um, I'm gonna back back up a little bit and ask you if you judge your life by successes and failures, because my next question was going to be what is failure, um, and if that is the right ideology, or if that's not the right ideology, what is um, how do you judge different um, moments in your life, you know, when it comes to successes and failures? Yeah, interesting question, because I mentioned success and failure, and I don't think are the right words, because you are constantly in that circle. You know, it's not a judge, it's, it's failure is you don't get what you expected, for example. In science, you write a fantastic paper, you think, and it's turned down or even not reviewed. You know, and and that's well, you know, the only thing you can say is I did the best I could to write that paper. It can be in your own family, your own relationship, wife or husbands, and so forth, and something goes wrong. Well, you know, uh, in life we have to review things and to go into this circle of motivation. In fact, I will tell you an anecdote. We, we are working at this moment with uh, how we teach health in very young, very young age, between age three to seven. And what we have learned, interestingly, it, whatever you do at that age, you capture and then comes up later on. But one thing is you have to be recurrent of your intervention. You can do an intervention between age three and six 
for example, 60 hours of teaching the importance of health and so forth. But you have to reintervene at age 12 and at age 20. And what is interesting here is in adults is the same thing. And that is whatever we do, at some point there are failures or there is negligence. So you have to reintervene. So our lives are by themselves a circle of reintervention. There is nothing that I know that is persistent. I certainly, I, I cannot have any example of that. Everything has these boundaries, ups and downs. And you, what you have to do is to know how you treat things at the appropriate time. This is why I think meditation or thinking or these 15 minutes are very helpful to go through all of this. Anyway, I don't know if I answer your question, but certainly I don't call success or, or failure. It's just our lives are constantly a fluctuation, like a, like a, a, a volume pressure curve, you see. <laughs> and that's that's how it is. Yeah, no, and I, I think a good analogy here, you know, from my own um, practice of meditation um, you know, from my own practice of transcendental meditation in Buddhism, they teach you is that there is never stability and that there is always that change is the only constant. And you find stability, you you basically relax into stability between two peaks of instability, which is the trough. And then you are ready for another instability. And that's what you do is you oscillate between peaks and troughs. Um, and you have to learn to relax into stability while being ever prepared for another wave coming, which is, you know, sort of the sort of exactly what what you what you said when you when you were talking yeah. about volume volume graphs. Yeah, I agree completely to what you say. Yeah, no, thank you. And I know Buddhism also, but I know Christianism and I know Judaism, which has been interest I have had. But anyway, this is a different subject. Yeah, no. Um, thanks, Dr. Fuster. So uh, I, I want to talk to you about leadership, because uh, I know that uh, there hasn't been, um, you know, interest. Um, I mean, you know, uh, certainly Jack publishes a, a leadership page. And there, I, I think in the broader physician community has been an interest in to quote unquote develop physician leaders. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could train I mean, it's all a skill, but I wanted I wanted to get your opinion on "quote unquote" born leaders versus, you know, leaders who are trained. I don't I don't even know if leaders can be trained. I think the physician, in and of itself, I think the occupation of being a physician is a leadership role. Um, and that's how I see you know being a physician as certainly. Uh, but you know, to you, what served you as your driving force uh, and as an inspiration? to be a leader and a, and a researcher? It's an interesting question because I had jobs that I never pursued. And, and I said, how did you get that job? And if I go over things you have done dealing with groups of society in which you are up there and you're supposed to, I think the first thing is to be humble. Leaders who are not humble, they don't last too long today. That's number one. Second, I think, example, you cannot talk and, and say things when you are not really an example of what you do. 
And the example comes from what you and I have been talking, uh, you know, in the last few minutes about fulfillment to do what you are doing right and so forth. And, and, and one issue in being humble is if you get a job of leadership, be sure you enter from the back door, never from the front door. Be sure you don't talk too much, but you do. <laughs> in other words, and it's yourself. So I found myself in positions, you know, you said you are the editor of Jack. Well, if I had to tell you why I'm the editor of Jack, you might laugh. It was a... a I, I never looked for being an editor of Jack or to be president of a society. I never... But what happened is the fellows came to me the day of the deadline, two days before the deadline, of editor of Jack. And they said, you know, you have to edit Jack. You have to go to the young people. You have to do this. You have to do that. I listened to them. And certainly I applied, but was, I, I, I don't know. And, and, and it has been a very fascinating experience because how you develop issues like the central figure, how you go into podcasts of all the articles and so forth. You put yourself into some side of a first in a humble way, and then you try to help the outside. So I think leadership is a combination, in my view, of humility, example, on one hand, and then you want to do something good for society, whatever you are doing, or groups of people, whatever, you try to do something good for them. To me, this is the balance that tells about leadership. Yeah, what a what a beautiful answer. It's it's just uh, as beautiful as poetry. And um, you know, I think it is a great segue for for me to um, you know ask you about being the editor in chief of Jack. Uh, I mean, a lot of firsts. And you know, I think as a reader of Jack and as someone who's followed the journey of Jack, obviously as an author. Um, as well as as a reviewer, I mean, I've several served in several roles, um, and I'm really grateful for all the opportunities. The the Valentin Fuster um, era of Jack, you know, in my mind as a reader, um, would be central illustration. Would be the podcast. Uh, would be the the clean, uncluttered, white Jack front cover. Um, would be the fellows in training and early career page, which I've written a lot on. And thank, thanks for, uh, you know, being so receptive to my ideas as a fellow in training and, and as early career. And also the leadership page. I think those are the four big standouts for me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot has gone into the editorial process and how you select articles. Uh, also the review topic of the week you know, which, which is fantastic. So, and I've, I've enumerated so many already. So, which, which tells you that you've clearly, uh, you know, stolen the hearts uh, of so many well, of us. Thank, thank, thank you very much, but I feel very humble. I want to, I want to tell you this, look, you know, all these things, I enjoy doing it. Uh, is, is something I can do. I feel uh, I can do it. I feel I'm not out of in the woods. And I feel happy doing it. You know, an example is is about the podcast. You know, a podcast, what it takes to do all the podcasts of all the articles. I can tell you 19 hours a week, one nine. Why? You have to read it. You have to be sure you don't fool people on anything and so forth. And you say, do you enjoy? My wife constantly asks me, how can you work on Saturdays using almost all day on this, are you enjoying it? And I said, yes, I do, but be sure that we have time for us on Sunday uh, or the rest of the week. 
So in a way, you have to do what you like. And you find yourself that whatever you do, you may do it correctly well, because that's basically, I would do things. If you ask me to be an interventionist and to go to your place and just, look, I am not that guy, I can tell you. I don't have that hand, those hands. I don't. And I will never get there. Although I was encouraged to do something like that, no, I would never do well. It's like playing tennis. It was fine. So I think you have to enjoy what you do. And uh, and Jack, whatever I'm doing, I enjoy. And certainly it takes a lot of hours. But I must tell you, I enjoy if I can do something that helps somebody. Yeah, no, it's, I think certainly helped. Um, I mean, helped so many physicians take care of take better care of patients at the bedside you know i think the the one the one aspect of jack which i would never miss i mean i would try not to miss all the original research that's published but certainly the review topic of the week is is very um friendly for a physician who's at the trenches taking care of patients at the bedside would never miss a fellow in career early training page uh, early career a fellow in training early career page would never miss the leadership page, which talks so much about how our society is evolving. Um, and, you know, I, I think I forgot to mention one more aspect, which I think was very novel, remains very novel. And that is how um, cardiologists and, and scientists and us as clinicians interact with society. I think cardiovascular medicine and society is such a beautiful addition to the journal, thanks to you. Which brings me to my next question, and that is... Um, what does leadership mean to you in the context of global health or public health? Well, I think here um, is a little bit the background that I mentioned at the beginning, and that is uh, what can you do for society? And here you have to be very humble. And that is first not to talk too much and try to do. And and frankly, I am very involved at this time. At this time, um, uh, what I decided to do 10 years ago, maybe some existential crisis, I said, we are treating disease too late. Why we don't understand health better? And maybe at the scientific basis, molecular, cellular, and so forth. And maybe we'll find ways to prevent disease pharmacologically or otherwise. And I move into the field of promoting health. And, and, and now at the present time, you know, uh, we are working with children uh, because I think this is the age that they capture everything and maybe later on it comes out. I mean, when you look at yourself or myself, it's so important, the environment that we live at the early stages of our life. So we are dealing now with 50,000 children around the world and it's a very engaged process of trying to understand how we can make a priority in these children about health. Middle age, age, I would say middle age, but between age 20, 30 to age 65, we are working in understanding imaging with the ultrasound who has subclinical disease. And we are learning a lot about it. You know, all the guidelines don't take into account when there is subclinical disease because you do it when you catheterize patients, but not when you have simple technology. In this case, ultrasound of the carotid, iliofemoral, and so forth. We're very involved there in, in a huge study, 12,000 people, and it's fascinating. And then in the elderly, we are getting into the brain with new imaging technology. And one of the things we are learning is that whatever happens in early life with your risk factors get into the brain in later life. 
and we do this with imaging with MRI quantification, PET, and so forth. Uh, hypertension not being treated, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, and so forth. So these are three large projects that really are dealing with health, but trying to do things before you get into into disease. And you know, I learned so much about it. For example, all these new treatments of heart failure, you're enhancing defense mechanisms, the new pharmacological treatments. The vaccination, you know, I had the, the luxury to, to be together in an award presentation with those who developed the vaccine. We became very good friends. And actually, it was very interesting. The mRNAs that we thought were a manifestation of disease, they were defense mechanisms. And the vaccine is how you enhance these defense mechanisms. We find the same thing with the bone marrow now, the macrophages. But what I'm saying to you is that at least my process at this moment of uh, fulfillment is to really get into the same thing with it, with disease, but now trying to understand health and how can you uh, have in society even if it is an inch, because that's basically our contribution. And that's what it is. And and so I'm very excited about this time, despite of anything, age and so forth. I don't care much if you can continue to develop what you can do reasonably well. So basically, this is what I'm doing at the present time. And I am excited about it. Thank you. It's it's beautiful. Excellent. Thank you. So So talking about the future, uh, Dr. Fuster, how do you select your priorities? You know, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, I think we've been trying to facilitate this centennial episode for for months now, and um, you know, with the understanding how of how busy you are, and you know, like, and to, just to give the listenership an example of this is that you're on vacation now. So thank you so much for doing this for us while you're on vacation. This is oh, yeah. is incredible. Um, but you know, like in terms of selecting priorities, because I'm sure you're, you get pulled in so many different directions. How, how do you do that? You know, moment to moment, how do you go about that? You know, uh, the, the 15 minutes in the morning, you probably are going to laugh about it, but life is a priority. Look, when I come in the morning, uh, you know, I have to do lots of things and I have today 20. Well, I will end up doing six, most likely. And in terms of projects, you might have five. You will end up doing two. But this is something that is intuitive, is the curiosity, is what you are capable to do. And this whole concept really goes to many of the issues we discussed today. And that is, sure, you would like to do one, two, three, four, five, six, but are you capable to do that? And one of the issues I have learned is the issue of trust that we mentioned before. I work with a team of people. For example, the projects in health, we have probably 50 people working on. And, uh, you know, it's the trust. And these people that go back many years. And some are related to children, some middle-aged, some in the elderly. But basically, is this is the sense that you have. You are enjoying what you are doing because you're working with people and you prioritize properly. I think the priority system is who you are, what is feasible, and let me do it the best I can. And then you, you set up your priorities. It seems very simple what they tell you. Certainly it's complicated, but the process by which you reach that goal, which is priority, I don't think it's too complicated. I mentioned, look, 10, 10, years, 10 years ago, I was working with disease, 
And one day I said, God, we are not preventing it. But then it moved me into health, which is much deeper than preventing diseases, how you mobilize all the aspects that you learn at the molecular, cellular level, and, and so forth, and you begin to work with health. So uh, these priorities come to you, I think, by intuition, by curiosity, by thinking, and so forth. And then you say, well, this is feasible. Let's move on. Dr. Fuster, you've uh, you've touched upon, a, again, it's, it's a word which um, I think more physicians, well, at least that's my perception, is that more physicians need to tune into more, and that is intuition. Um, and I, I, I find, you know, certainly my father, who's a very intuitive physician, and I, I, he certainly has been my role model, uh, you know, in clinical medicine. Um, how do you harness intuition? How do you fine tune intuition? Because I think that is so important to each of us as humans, not only as physicians, but also as humans. I think it's not only you, it's part of the other people who you work with and you trust. And this is actually we went from the very beginning in the discussion here today, is that uh, intuition comes with the others. Why Professor Sheehan, with that slide, told me that I should get into what is the cause of heart attacks, or that plot, cause of consequence. But somehow, he learned from me something, which was that curiosity into understanding heart attacks. And I think he pulled it together and gave me a message. And I think this happens with anything. I think intuition uh, comes with the relationship with many people. For example, I work with, you know this program, Sesame Street? Sesame Street is an educational program in children. Well, they've recruited me. I don't know why, but anyway. And and we we change Cookie Monster from from eating cookies seven days a week to one day a week. Why I thought that was wrong to give to children that message, so it began to eat one day a week, and this had a tremendous impact on children to the point that Sesame Street today is, is all about health in developing countries, HIV, Chagas disease. Uh, malaria, that's what Sesame Street changed. What was the intuition? The intuition was, I don't know, I got into that program and I say education of children is so important and my life was so critical. How you can have being a physician, a guy like Cookie Monster eating cookies seven days a week? I don't think it's, I don't know whether it's intuition or what it is, but it's the whole system shakes you up and you change or you try to change the system and now you might know what is interesting, you know, he's a doctor now, he's myself, he's a Muppet, Dr. Rooster, and, and, and actually has an incredible impact on these children. He's now in Latin America and he's coming to the United States. Something that, that processes that show how the Muppets deal with health, how Cookie Monster does a resuscitation to another Muppet. But all of this is intuitive. But it's the way you deal with things and so forth. Don't ask me how I got into Sesame Street. I don't. I even don't remember that. But it's the whole context. It gives you a sense, you know, this is what I can do and I think it's worth it. <laughs> so intuitive is, is you and the other people. Yeah, no, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, 
Dr. Fuster, we've I'm sure you've come across this as, as the editor-in-chief of Jack um, and as a as a clinician scientist. Um, what do you think about artificial intelligence? You know, some would like to call it augmented intelligence, which I think is a better word than artificial intelligence. And how do you see it interface with medicine? How do you see the next 10 years with medicine and its interface with AI? Look, it's interesting because I have an editorial about this this week, actually, in Jack. This is the way I see it. Uh, uh, first of all, I think I understand what artificial intelligence is, and there are positives and negatives. The positives are obvious. They will be able to pull together facts that we, our intelligence, is not capable to. But I rather, I rather like to talk about the concerns in terms of medicine. The first concern I have is today in education of the young people is very digital and technologically oriented. They present a patient to me and everything is data. When I said, when you talk to the patient, is the patient dizzy? Did you do orthostatism? Did you look at, you understand, it's like something in the educational system that is bothering. And artificial intelligence, in my view, is going to enhance this further. So what I'm saying to you is going to be very helpful in pulling data together. But in a way, I am very concerned into what consider digital versus cognitive pathways. And the cognitive pathway, in my view, is going to be affected. Then being in Jack, I have experiences already with the chat GPT that are not good. Articles that come, you don't know where they come from, the data. Is the data manufactured? Is the data real? So today you can write a paper which appears to be beautiful, and you don't know where it comes from. So even the journals in the future are going to be incredible challenge of how you uh, judge a paper that comes from artificial intelligence and otherwise. So. I think artificial intelligence is very interesting. For example, um, I read this book, and I know both of them, uh, uh, Smith and Kissinger. And they wrote a book about artificial intelligence. And this is very fascinating because I tell you the future out of medicine, you will be able to predict if a confrontation that evolves going to the, to the past, what is going to happen. And the question is, the politicians are going to follow what artificial intelligence tells you not to do, or they are going to follow their own ambitions. So artificial intelligence has many good things, and this is a good one. In that case, is it going to be followed? You see, it's a completely ball game. So I think we are dealing with, to me, it's like the discovery of electricity. We are going to be dealing with something very serious here. And the question is how you dominate what we have in front of us. And this is a huge challenge. I only mentioned to you in medicine what are my concerns are. I'm concerned about the journals and I'm concerned about the cognitive versus the technological development of the young people. I really do. Because this is a problem we face today already. I'm on board with you. I haven't had a chance to read your editorial, which you know I will and will will try and share the editorial. In, in the show notes. Yeah, I mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll 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 share it with the listenership and in the, in the show notes for the for the podcast. And 
Um, this has been a, a fascinating discussion, Dr. Fuster. Thank you so much for, for your time. Um, I, I want to, you know, as closing remarks, uh, you know, three books that you would recommend to the listenership and Parallax and, you know, what will be your, your final advice to our listenership, you know, particularly early career faculty? Well, first, let me tell you what I read and why. Mm-hmm. Um, I read very much conceptually and philosophically. You have to understand that when you feel you are obliged to do something for society, you really choose what you read. And it's interesting to me. Um, I was very influenced by Raviatat Tagore. I was very influenced by the French philosophers, the Yard de Chardin. Uh, this is inside me. This is conceptually. In terms of science, aside of medicine, I read every week nature and science on issues that are not necessarily related to medicine. Meantime, I read books that you can say this book really had an influence on you. Well, uh, Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel laureate. He's a good friend of mine. He was an economist and psychologist. And he wrote this book, Fast and Slow Thinking, and most recently, Noise, which is fascinating. I am very touched by Viktor Frankl when he wrote The Holocaust. In the worst circumstances, what positives you can learn. We have been talking about this afternoon about this. Uh, Barbara Mackenzie has a very similar book called The War. What do you learn from wars? that is not a disaster? What do you come out with positive? So these books have a tremendous influence on me. What can you get of positive of a bad experience? And how can you be logical in a world that is illogical? And this is actually Daniel Kahneman with fast thinking, slow thinking, which is a lot about intuition there. (laughs) When you use the logic, you probably don't get anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> when you use your intuition, probably you do. And that's the book. So uh, I read, I would like to have more time, but this is exactly how I move. And I have a tremendous driving, I have to tell you frankly, with Christianism in terms of the role in society, how much I learned from Buddhism and how much I learned from Judaism. So, uh, but I think this driving to can you do something for society? To me, is absolutely critical. And I think we go biologically, at the beginning is how you survive. That's the reality. But as you advance in time and you feel more secure or more stable, I would say, into what you expect, I think is the time that you can begin to move into what can you do for somebody else. And I think I am certainly at this stage, I am age 80 right now. I feel very energetic. With my bicycle, I do all what people think is crazy. But, you know, if you have the possibilities, why not? And so I think very much in terms of reading is very much involved into with all this reading, can you do something that is meaningful? That's basically the stage I am, which is different stage than when I was age 25 or age 30, where, you know, what do you do that will make you to move forward? And so forth. You don't think about society at that time. You think about yourself. So I think this this change in biology is very important. 
Yeah, no, I, th- those were excellent books that, you know, I've, I've read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and um, I'm going to make sure I read the other recommendations from you. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing with us such a philosophical and spiritual side of you. It's, um, you know, it's, it's inspirational and, you know, m- may the force be with you. You are a fantastic 80 year old. Um, you know, I wish all of us are as good as you are at 80 and as productive and as forward thinking and as, um, um, as progressive, as positive, uh, those are all excellent qualities to to look up to, Doctor Fuster. Any closing remarks for podcast uh, for podcasting in general, uh, as well as for Parallax? Um, and I, you know, I hope you get no uh, to other episodes. No, the only question, the the only issue, I would say, it has been a pleasure to be with you in the last forty five minutes. Why? because you touch into the critical issues to me. And uh, again, here's where the intuition comes. I don't know you well, I don't know you well enough, but I think I do now. And I think this is the kind of interview that to me is much more meaningful than just going into what people call accomplishments or what this kind of thing. So I have to give you thanks. And this is the only message I can give to people, and that is, if they listen to the interview, I think they are listening to two people that they think alike. And again, this is intuitive. Oh, this is this is such a such a beautiful closing remark, Doctor Fuster. Thank you so much for doing this for us, and you know, I I hope this is widely listened to because I've learned so much from you as as an individual, as a person, as a physician, as a scientist, um, and really as um, you know, the editor-in-chief extraordinaire who's broken so much new ground with with Jack and continues to do so in, in his life with, with public health and with how we think of uh, children. Uh, thanks again. This has meant so much to me and this has been a very spiritual experience for me also. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I hope we have more of a chance to talk and, and so forth. But it's a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.